the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. A little bit of a special episode today. We're catching up with Tony Baird, who's the Chief Technology Officer at Vodafone here in New Zealand. How are you, Tony? Hi, Paul. How are you today? Good, good, good. Now, last uh, last few days, we got th- we got through a little bit of a update from TrueNet, who monitor internet performance in New Zealand. And well, it was interesting because it showed that Vodafone's uh, network performance had increased dramatically in the last um, in their last report. And I'm kind of curious to hear from you. What well, what's been going on? Why? Uh, why have you had such a jump? What was the, what was the issue? Do you think? Well, we we do independent tests ourselves, and our network was showing um, good performance across the board. Mobile networks still uh, top of the pops with the P3 independent tests, which is a German company, for instance. Um, so we felt that there was potentially some uh, issues on the other side of the network via the handover links, effectively, which was determined to be the case. Those are being repaired, and their tests are now showing the performance improvements. So in actual fact, we didn't have to do anything to our network. So you haven't changed yeah, anything. Yeah, it's no, just it's running the same running, as it, as running it was. Running just the same as it was, but um, uh, some of the handover links on the other side of um, outside our network were, were um, basically remediated, and that's looking really good. So we're very pleased to see that. How frustrating is it for you as, you know, being in charge of, of running the network and the technology behind it when a, a, an independent sort of third party doesn't manage to get um, their results lining up with, with yours and uh, and then, you know, suddenly this, this happens? It must impact your... Um, uh, you know, from a from a, a you know, you've got customers who are feeling like, oh, maybe I'm not with the right ISP. They're not delivering the best performance. You've got people deciding what network to be with. Um, I get quite disappointed actually because I put a lot of my time and effort into trying to do the right thing, and uh, yeah, I feel disappointed. I feel like people think they're being let down, and I'm trying to do my best to give them the best service I can. And you don't always get it right, I know that. I mean, it's, these, these are big, complicated networks, and everybody has issues, but really I put a lot of effort into trying to do the right thing, and so I was quite disappointed. Yeah, and you have dialogue with them when these sorts of things happen? How does that work? Yeah, I have a department, a quality department, that does um, drive testing themselves and performance testing, and I get weekly reports, so clearly we uh, had conversations to try to remediate those issues and our TrueNet's test methodology is slightly different as well they look at variance of performance Uh, you know I mean basically our drive testing looks at raw performance latency speed to download different servers and we were not seeing those issues so anyway look it looks like it's sorted now it's sorted so so let's uh, move on I guess yeah good good so I'm curious just to catch up on uh, a few other things you've Upgraded your uh, what you're calling your FibreX network, which is really the I guess uh, from a customer perspective, is where they've got a cable running to their uh, to their home in most cases. Because you you don't generally sell this to businesses, right? That's it's just yeah. predominantly yeah. Uh, con- consumers that would utilise that. Okay, so uh, if I just quickly explain what FibreX is, um, so FibreX uh, the name comes from hybrid fibre coaxial so the middle word fiber and the x out of coaxial the hfc network or hybrid fiber coax fiber x network is fiber to the cabinet 
and coaxial cable into the home. So it's um, what used to be but a radically upgraded version of what used to be the Telstra Saturn cable TV network or Telstra Clear cable TV network. We upgraded it to DOCSIS 3.1. This is the new global internet standard. Um, Comcast in the USA uh, and others are marketing this as gigabit ethernet, uh, which it is capable of doing, and we are selling a gigabit product. And um, so we sell that predominantly into residential homes, that w- w- what was built uh, some time ago. But small businesses uh, is perfectly adequate and, and a great service to small businesses as well. Right. So there are some some locations where you're running that into small businesses yes, yes. as well. Yeah. Um, the other really good thing about the DOCSIS 3.1 upgrade is we're actually also capable of fibre to the home. So we've been testing both fibre to the home, so effectively a UFB-like service, and also the Fibre XHFC product. So both are capable of being delivered over that network. The other big difference between our um, our Fibre X network and uh, UFB is our uh, network is GPON2, and GPON2 is 10 gigabit per second, versus uh, GPON1, which is the UFB, which is um, uh, 2.4. Right. Would you imagine it's at some stage in time that uh, that may well change, I suppose? Oh, absolutely. There's an evolution path for GPON and yeah. everybody will be tracking to that. I mean, that's the beauty of this new technology is as people need more, it can be upgraded and scaled. So both are perfectly good and great networks. Mm. How are you finding the demand for gigabit-type performance, whether it be uh, you know, across um, UFB or whether it be your uh, your FibreX product? How much interest we're, is there? On FibreX, we're mainly selling the 200 meg product. Um, yeah, there's a large chunk of people taking the 200 meg product, which is really um, pretty much all you need. I mean, you're running a couple of high-definition TVs, surfing the internet, 200 meg's quite a lot of capacity um, or performance. We've sold a bit of the one gig product. Um, I, I think it was like ten percent, I think, of the sales. But um, the majority of the sales are two hundred meg. And you're, I guess, with that offering, you're coming in at a reasonably sharp price point, so it makes it pretty attractive for those who have got maybe the option uh, of FibreX or going with UFB to, um, we, to go down that track. We because it's our own network. We uh, we we don't have to buy wholesale inputs, so it's priced. Pretty keenly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, now, what what is next for you? As far I mean, you've mentioned that you can do uh, or run your own fibre directly to the home with that uh, with that network with uh, Doxus three point one, uh, and you've tried that. Is it uh, Pegasus, which is near Christchurch? Yeah, where you've, so you've um, Pegasus, ta- Pegasus Town in Christchurch. So that's just um, about forty kilometres north of Christchurch on State Highway one. It's a, a, a very new subdivision, um, and basically they've got a combination of DOCSIS 3.1 hybrid fibre coax and also fibre to the home products. We're basically testing the performance of both and just getting comfortable that that fibre to the home can be run off this product, and it seems to be working fine. Mm, okay. Um, so would you expect to do any more of that? Are there any situations where you'd roll out you know, fibre Further, be it sort of you know business uh, type uh, scenarios where you know I, I, the, in fact the building we're in at the moment has uh, in it some of the copper that uh, Telstra ran in parallel or you know overbuilding what was already uh, in place in terms of what the telecom network had, had put in past. So there's a bit of a bit of history there in some parts of the country, and of course 
where uh, the cable network was run when there was already a copper network. Yeah, so um, will we extend our own fixed network, I guess is the question, and I would not say never, um, certainly for um, businesses and um, you know large corporations, we're still doing our own fibre builds off our um, CBD fibre rings, so certainly uh, large enterprises and businesses, we are doing fibre extensions. Uh, would we do residential build? Um, we have tools in our t- tool bag to do that. That's what you know these fibre to home tests in Pegasus were all about. Um, at the moment, there's a perfectly good UFB product with a, a good price point for inputs. Um, but you know you want to keep options, so let's say that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, what about fixed wireless? The idea of using the mobile network to deliver you know connectivity to homes and businesses. How's that working out at the moment? Uh, I definitely see Spark really pushing that you know heavily, mm. as though they they don't want anybody to use any other way to uh, to connect what's your sort of take on the the role of of fixed wireless um you know we know it you know, is really helpful in certain scenarios where people just can't yeah. certainly can't yeah. get uh fiber like in uh in rural situations and and you know where the rural broadband uh initiative has been established but what's your overall sort of okay, take so, on that in the future of it so if you consider um sort of an onion skin where you're peeling off layers of the onion and if you start on the outside which is the very, very rural parts of New Zealand. Our offer, a proposal for RBI 2, would be small cells, uh, solar power, possibly in some cases satellite backhaul, and that would be fixed wireless access. Uh, you move in for RBI 1, RBI 1 has been um, large, big cell towers, um, and it's all fixed wireless access. Uh, most of that's all 4G, and certainly RBI2 is 4G, uh, or our proposal for that. As you move in, you get to suburban areas, and suburban areas I, I see as being you know, reasonably good targets for also 4G fixed wireless access. In those areas, you've got um, DSL, which are you know, digital subscriber loop, or the old um, copper-based um, broadband. Those speeds, you can't get VDSL in a lot of cases. It's still ADSL, the AC synchronous slower speeds so I think in those cases fixed wireless access is a really good bridging technology to when fibre ultimately gets there because ultimately fibre will get there so it's great bridging technology for two to five years Uh, I think there are areas where 4G can be used as a backup so if you are a small business and you want reliability and redundancy and failover you've got your fixed line and your mobile for your backup um, I see those sorts of applications. I don't think volume rollout in an urban, densely urban, fibred environment. Um, however, in the future, um, post 2020, 2021, 5G, you're starting to see 5G in America, pre-releases of 5G, being used at high bandwidths from street cabinets into homes as the last sort of drop into the house. So uh, I could see a future where you'll have high-capacity fibre and off that high-capacity fibre, you have um, some sort of last mile, or not last mile, last few hundred metres wireless drop. People don't tend to carry fibre around in their back pocket. <laughs> that is true, that is true. So there, you think there is a... I mean, if you were to sort of you know, place a bet in terms of where we would be in, let's say, 2030, so you know, 13 years out, would you see... 
you know, how would you see people's homes being connected if it was a sort of a you know percentage wise just you you know your your pick um, of people being connected to you know fixed something like like fiber um, versus a, a, a wireless type offering any thoughts on how that could Look, land I think by then the majority of existing homes will have fiber to the home absolutely so new houses that are built or new subdivisions possibly could be fibre to the curb with 5G into the house. I think that's very likely. I think the existing homes that have fibre to the home, they'll stay with fibre to the home. You get very good performance here. By then it'll be 1 gig, 10 gig type services to the home, no doubt. Yep. Um, so I think there's going to be a, a combination of both. And the the only common thing will be it'll be internet protocol, it'll be high definition, super high definition TVs, it's all about video and high bandwidth, and it'll all be either really high-capacity radio or fibre, both married together in a common protocol. Okay, interesting. Um, Right now is a really exciting time to be in the industry. It's a massive turning point, from, and it's accelerating so fast. Mm. From the legacy copper services, they're all being switched off, going to a fibre, 4G, 5G world. You know, the Internet of Things and machine to machine is really taking off. Artificial intelligence is really, really exciting time for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I still, I still hear those comments from people, particularly as we start talking about five G networks being quite close. People say, "Well, why do we have this fiber uh, network? Why do we need fiber to our homes when we'll just be able to, you know, hook onto a um, a, a fast wireless connection in the future?" But there's still a pretty important place, isn't there, for yeah, fiber for a yeah. very, very long time well, to come. Actually, fibre is absolutely critical for 5G, absolutely critical. You couldn't have a 5G network without a really good, solid backhaul network um, and distribution network because 5G is going to be, to get the real bandwidths that people want, it's going to be a very, very high radio frequency. It's called millimetric radio, so it's up around 28 gigahertz um, as some of the standards that are being talked about. When you're up at that bandwidth, you're only talking a few metres of distance for gigabits per second of performance. So you're going to need to backhaul that, all of that traffic, and that's going to be on fibre. So it's going to be, they're going to be so tightly linked. And what, is it, what will it mean in terms of cell sites? Because you need to be very close to people, you need a lot more sites. There's already uh, challenges uh, in terms of putting cell sites into varying locations at the moment. How do you think that picture will change? Well, the good news is, like all electronics, these um, technologies are getting smaller and smaller, and they're using less and less electricity. So as long as you've got a piece of fibre and potentially solar power or some other form of low electricity, a small cell is using hundreds of watts. A large cell tower on the side of the street or in the countryside is using 3,000 watts. (laughs) So you're talking about a massive decrease in power consumption. You're talking about smaller electronics, but you're talking about a lot more. Today we have about 1,600 cell sites in the Vodafone network. I could see that being five to 10,000 with 5G being rolled out. But they're going to be small cells, there's going to be lots of them. They're going to be low density, low power, um, as far as electricity consumption. And so they'll start to be mounted in places where you wouldn't see them. They'll be on um, street lamps, they'll be in bus shelters, they'll be... So they'll be distributed and you wouldn't necessarily know they're there. Think of Wi-Fi size boxes. Yeah, yeah. Which um, I'm sure Spark would be pleased about with all the old phone booths sort of sitting around they can drop gadgetry into. 
Um, have you thought about how you'll get those out, or do you don't imagine that's going to be too much of a challenge once oh, time I comes? think with the size, you're not going to be that much of an issue. I think you know you've got street lighting, you've got all these sorts of options. I have a lot of street cabinets already out, so um, you know we'd be equipping all of those. It's about getting that backhaul. Yeah, yeah, okay, good, good. Now. What else is going on? You uh, mentioned we were chatting earlier around uh, narrowband IoT. Can you explain what what this is, what it's all about, and yep. um, and where does it where does it fit compared to what we have now in terms of two G, three G, four G networks? Yeah, sure. So um, Vodafone has had a very good pedigree of. Um, consistency of technology. So we've been 2G, 3G, 4G, will be 5G. It's all been GSMA compliant, which is the global standards. Others have moved between different technologies in New Zealand and that's had you know massive disconnects between the evolution. So the good news is our machine-to-machine um, -machine and our mobile networks had this smooth evolution. So on the 2G network, we have um, the first generation of IoT. It used to be called machine-to-machine, -machine, and now it's called Internet of Things. Um, so that first generation um, has been very successful. We've got about 1.4 million devices connected in New Zealand. What's which, the, what are those? How would they, would they break down in terms of what are those devices yeah, that are connected? Yeah, so predominantly power meters, so intelligent power meters that basically read how much power you've consumed, send back a short message, they're normally 128-byte messages, sends them back, and it basically says an ID for the meter and how much power has been consumed. And they've been used in other things as well, things like um, irrigation meters for water consumption, turning on and off fans, turning on or off um, uh, irrigation schemes at various places, monitoring uh, water um, in the soil, so it's basically a very low bit rate, um, 128 byte. Here's some information you might need. It, that, it, you, you can poll the device, so periodically it would send an update or you would poll it. If there's a change in circumstance, for instance, um, if you're monitoring a vat of liquid and you want to know when the temperature goes up, you start sending more information because the temperature is getting to a sensitive point. All those sorts of things are being used today in our network. Narrowband IoT is the 4G, 5G variant of that 2G technology in, in essence. Uh, you start to get to your uh, lower latency, but the best thing for narrowband IoT in New Zealand will be the range. Uh, it, it's double the range. You get 20 decibels, which to the layman is effectively double the range that you get today on the mobile network. So um, On the 2G network no, or on, on the 4G, 4G network? network. Right. So the L700 network, the um, LTE700 network that we rolled out with the analogue TV spectrum, you know, you're talking 20-ish kilometres for a, for a normal cell type application. As long as you're not sort of got some massive cliff in the way or a mountain, uh, you could double that for narrowband IoT. Right, and how will it compare with the 2G network that you know, a lot of those communications have, have happened on uh, to date? Because so you're going to have to shut that down at some point, of course. Yes, so we've committed to the 2G um, to be available to at least 2025. Um, so that's a commitment we've done for the power companies and others, 2025. So we're talking about eight years between now and potentially having to move to this new narrowband IoT technology. So that should give most people a good runway. I, I think most people would be pretty hard-pressed to find a phone over eight years old. <laughs> um, so there will be a migration. Um, so that is 
going to allow us to get to the density that we expect. So 1.4 million devices today, we expect to be 14 or 20 million devices over the next 10, 15 years. I mean, it's just, they're talking about 50 billion sensors and 50 billion devices around the world in the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. So it's just really taking off. We've only just seen the start of this machine revolution. And... What are you What are you seeing in terms of the, you know, where the where the new IoT uh, devices are, are coming from? We've got the, those power meters, which I don't know whether they'll be will they be upgradable or will they be replacing those to um, in, in Look, order the to technology um, will have to be replaced. So the whole yeah. the whole thing will have to be replaced. Um, if you've got a smart meter put in five years ago or a month ago. Those in many cases won't be upgradable as such. After twenty twenty five, you need yeah, to have a new they device. Actually, yeah. replace the whole yeah. lot. Yeah, and and we've made that very clear for at least the last five years that there's an end of life to the to the um, you know two G machine to machine network. Well, they can always send around a meter reader, can't they, to go and have a, have a look at what's on your uh, what's on your old that, smart hoping, meter if I'm they ho- don't upgrade it. <laughs> I'm hoping that you know this technology allows people to get into innovative new technologies, <laughs> <laughs> develop our export industry. <laughs> That's good. Um, so, yeah, what what else can we uh, can we expect? And and yeah, how how does um, how does this narrow, the narrowband IoT work in terms of? You know, it sits side by side with the the four G networks. What range does it yes, use? Yes, it, t- so it takes a very small chunk of spectrum. Uh, it's low bandwidth, high distance. Uh, it allows you to do really good um, remote monitoring and uh, other things. Uh, it's global, so the benefit of this standard is it's a global one. So if you buy a car that's got narrowband IoT off a, a car dealer, uh, that car could be bought in any country in the world and it's going to work. You don't need to have a special adaptation for New Zealand. Uh, and you can see with all the sensors that they're putting in cars now, you know, more and more you want that remote connectivity built in. So those are the sorts of applications. Would this be the sort of thing I saw um, somebody recently uh, was... Uh, Kiwis that were involved in a project to sell some quite low-cost GPS trackers. Um, would this work in that type of uh, type of scenario? Um, it's more for um, sensor monitoring rather than GPS. I mean, GPS uses uses a satellite. This is using the four G network, right? But I mean, in terms of a, a sensor that's kind of sending sending information back to back to base. It's sort of oh, a you yes. know a portable little GPS tracker, which is getting its you know location from the satellite, but um, needs to ping back on whatever frequency. Yes, you'd be able to use it for things like that, definitely. Would it provide some benefits from a power perspective or other perspective as opposed to using the, the normal network? Yeah, it's The other term for it is low power wide area. So very low power, they're talking about 10-year battery life. So you'd be able to put these devices out and leave them for 10 years. So low power and wide area, obviously, I've already talked about the extended yeah. range of these things. So have. that type of scenario now where we see somebody that's launching a little GPS tracker that you know, I think uh, the one we're looking at, and I can't remember the, the name of it, um, that may, may come to me, um, it was on Kickstarter. Uh, but if you had it sort of pinging back with a location every, whatever it was, maybe every minute that its battery was going to last you a day, if you had it pinging back uh, every hour, then it was going to last for you know a week, uh, for instance. And if you had it pinging back sort of once a day, it was going to last for a few months. So in this type of scenario, that might, uh, might help, depending on how much... Um, 
power, I guess, it uses for the GPS side of it because yeah. that, that could actually uh, burn through the battery Well, that's going to be the thing. Right. The more things you're running <laughs> off a device, the faster the battery's going to go down. And you see that when you just run your normal cell phone and you've got all your apps open, the doesn't last as long as when you're just running it as a phone. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that will be that'll be an interesting one um, to see. Have you seen anything down down that sort of uh, track in terms of? So, uh, you know, we've got our Zone Lab in Christchurch, um, and we're about to announce actually in the next week or so the next ten intakes for that zone. So, it's an incubator effectively for startups. At least half of the startups are working on uh, IoT. Oh, so, some really interesting companies. I probably better not say who they are. Okay. <laughs> we haven't announced it yet, have we? <laughs> All right, well, I won't get you into trouble there, Tony. You, you can, wait for it. There's some really interesting we'll, we'll, IoT ones We'll look forward there. to hearing hearing about them once um, uh, once you can officially um, discuss that. So, uh, yeah. Um, anything else going on from a, a network perspective or a technology perspective from Vodafone that we should be aware of? Um, look, we're working on a number of new... Um, devices for our video network so I'd be keen to let you know a bit more about that in the next few weeks yeah some very exciting stuff in the video area good and um, I mean people are always curious about 5g how you know are you any closer to to being able to say when when you think we'll start seeing some of that uh, yeah, roll out in New Zealand of course there are there have been you know varying things going on in the US standards not quite ratified yet but uh, you know various telcos doing some experiments particularly uh, for the, you know on a fixed wireless type uh, type basis what can you share so there? I know the Olympics you're talking about having pre-release of 5g um, so they're coming up soon uh, America's been trialing pre-release of 5g um, I've seen demonstrations uh, obviously there's no real devices yet <laughs> for, for receiving the signal so it's all lab stuff I've seen um, so the good news about 5G is it's a natural evolution from 4G whereas I think 2G to 3G was a, a sort of a halfway move to internet protocol 4G is true internet protocol and 5G is just a faster quicker more agile version of 4G so I don't think it's going to be such a revolution that we've seen for some of the other technologies I mean if you remember others have had CDMA and AMPs and DMPs everything's converging now on 4G and 5G's an evolution of that so I think we're seeing sort of mass global standardisation in this area which is really good news And what other extension will we see from a 4G perspective from you between now and when 5G rolls out? So, look, um, we already have a 4G plus network. <laughs> we rolled out carrier aggregation. Carrier aggregation is where you take multiple blocks of spectrum and you basically glue them together. And in gluing them together, instead of having 5 megahertz, you get 20 or 25 megahertz or more of spectrum sort of bonded together. And that's what 4.5G is, and we already have about 500 base stations across New Zealand with that 4.5G technology on it. Uh, And as I said earlier, we've got about 1,600 base stations. So we have it. 4.5G is probably next week's 4.7G, you know. (laughs) And you'll probably get to 4.95G before we get to 5G (laughs) if you want to have marketing games like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we always <laughs> there's always got to be a bit of uh, one upmanship going on in the uh, in, in the telco world, and uh, you know uh, some of it, I guess, um, you know, is is good, useful technological improvement. Some of it is a little bit more uh, marketing oriented, but uh, 
um, I guess that's that's the nature of the game. Isn't oh, it? absolutely! Look, have have some fun like that, of course. Yeah. I mean, our P three test, which is a German company that audits our network, shows we've still got the fastest. So that makes me feel comfortable at least. So what are what are the top speeds that you're able to get across the network at the moment? And of course, in a real world scenario, you've got multiple devices connecting to a cell site, and you know people have a, a whole range of of gadgets that they uh, connect. So the you know the, the yeah I'm kind of curious what are the top speeds you get, and from the the uh, the P3 um, testing, what are you know what yeah, are the consistent okay. speeds? So with tri-band, which is three radio frequency so tri-band carrier aggregation is where I sort of take say 1800 megahertz and 700 megahertz or 2600 megahertz and bond three of those radio frequencies together we've got speeds of over 400 megabits per second um, and what phones can do that that's well some of the new the newer um, category phones the latest ones out can do tri-band so that's good news um, the the sort of P3 test was shown we're getting about 44 megabits per second across a consistent drive test. So that's pretty good user performance to a, and most typical handsets, 4G handsets can do faster than that. So that's a good usable speed. You can see that in surfing the internet and watching YouTube videos and other things. They don't stutter like they used to on the 3G networks. So look, I'm pretty comfortable that that's good performance. Yep. And what can you do for uh, for those that are in Poor coverage areas. Any, uh, I mean, are you continuing to sort of grow the network? And and you know, I'm where I, where I live in Auckland. Uh, I don't get the best uh, coverage just because of the topological sort of you know hills and and so on. It's not the best situation. I've plugged in one of your little shore signal boxes to get a bit of coverage. But those types of scenarios, is that kind of the best option at, at this stage, or are you continuing to add cell so, sites? We are adding cell sites. Um, we're also adding 700 megahertz radio spectrum. Um, we're looking at um, 900 4G. So at the moment on the 900 megahertz we have um, the GSM 2G network. We have the 3G network. We're looking at adding a bit of um, 4G to that spectrum. So we've got some really good low radio frequencies with 700 and 900. We've made heavy use of 1800 megahertz. We, in fact, we've filled that entire band up with um, 4G. We've got some 2600, uh, and we've obviously got 2100. So we've got a good range of spectrum. So we've been adding more and more 4G to those radio spectrums. That's this tri-band carrier aggregation we were just talking about before. The other area um, we've been working in is small cell technology. So we've been testing and using small cells for where you basically plug a piece of fibre in and you've then got your own small base station. That's going to be very big, I think, over the next few years as we move to 5G, and we sort of talked about that before. Where are those in use at the moment? I mean, I remember talking uh, maybe a a couple of years ago, looking at at that technology sort of before any of it had been rolled out. Um, Have you gone ahead and started putting those into some of the locations that were looked at? We've got at least 40 of those small cells um, commercially deployed into um, companies that are in rural locations around the country. Um, where it's really isolated, we've put some of those in with a satellite backhaul. And some of that testing was for two reasons. One, getting ready for 5G-type deployments where they're going to be 
prolific. The other was um, for RBI2 because I think we'll be using that technology for RBI2. So we're getting confident that it works, it's reliable, and it, we are, have actually commercially deployed it. SureSignal, which is the uh, product you were talking about before, that is a 3G technology, and that was really to extend voice coverage, especially because people felt we're getting dropped calls in the home and things like that. Um, we still have that. I don't know whether we'll do a 4G version of that uh, at this point. I think we'd rather invest in the L700 and just rolling out macro coverage um, until we get to the small cell technology, which I think is the next big thing. Right, right. Okay. Um, Yeah, because that's something that I guess comes from Vodafone Global, doesn't it, in terms of you wouldn't develop something unique and, and different from what's being done on a global basis. Uh, for New Zealand likely in that case? No. Um, so the benefit of being part of a global organisation like Vodafone is we have uh, a group R&D function uh, and I partially report into group and uh, locally as well. So uh, well hooked into what's happening globally. They work with the suppliers, look at the next evolution of technology. However, what we do do in New Zealand quite well is adapt it. You know, like some of the satellite backhaul stuff, we were one of the first to do. Um, we did the search and rescue application where we bolted a cell site under a helicopter and made sure that people could be located in rural areas because your phone would connect to the helicopter. So I think we sort of adapt it to New Zealand conditions quite well. Have you actually had a chance to uh, to use that in a real search and rescue no, situation? Because that sounds quite cool, flying around with a mobile cell site to uh, you know see if yeah. you can find somebody. I've got... Ho- really optimistic what we need to do is it's 80 kilograms of base station in a helicopter um, so we've got to shrink it down to about 30 kilograms so it's a very much smaller I think those small cells that we were talking about would make that possible um, and we're working with our suppliers on that also search and rescue um, people had some really good ideas for how to make it much more user friendly for them so things like conferencing capability so the guys on the ground could conference in the person they're looking for it wasn't just a conversation between the helicopter and the ground and uh, better geolocation capability because at the moment you're sort of within a few hundred meters I'd like to get it that much tighter you know maybe sort of tens of meters if you're in some sort of distress situation they can go straight straight to where the person is so we're working on all of that and um, you know we hope to take that to other parts of the world as well once we get it sorted out Oh, that's cool. Excellent. Well, very good to catch up again, Tony. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Good to see you. Cheers. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.